0: Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform.
1: Hey, welcome to episode number eight. We have the gang here this week. We also have a special guest, Randy Campbell, to talk to us about network isolation and private endpoints in Azure. But before that, let's go to the news. Sarah, what we got?
0: So I've got a couple of things this week to talk about. Firstly, in preview is OpenID Connect support for Azure App Services and functions. So that means if you're using an OpenID Connect provider for your authentication, you can now integrate that into Azure App Service and Azure Functions. If you don't want to use Azure AD, I would ask you why you don't want to use Azure AD, because it's great, but for some reason you need to use another OpenID Connect provider, you can now do that, which is really cool. Next, I'm going back to my favorite because we always have things to talk about um, in this space. We're talking about AKS. And now you can get secure AKS pods using policy. So it means that um, like Azure Policy and the rest of Azure, you can actually deny and audit requests into a pod. So uh, there's 16 inbuilt options. you can with those particular settings, you can either put them on audit or you can put them on deny. So uh, you can really, really lock down the security of the pod and actually what happens within that pod because it's always about AKS with me as well, you can also now get managed Azure AD support that's generally available in AKS, which means you don't have to create client apps or service apps. It's all managed for you. So again, just making AKS, well, doing the right thing authentication-wise with AKS way, way easier, which is,
2: again, I sound like a broken record, but very cool. And they're all my news bits this week. The first one I selected for this week is related to Azure Monitor, uh, extending their support to containers. Azure Monitor is now able to monitor containers, uh, CPU, memory, disk usage, and many others. In terms of security, this provides another opportunity to detect security issues since they often cause performance impact. This gives us the opportunity to correlate uh, those performance indicators with information from services like Azure Security Center, Sentinel, Defender ATP, etc. The next news that I'm really excited about is that Microsoft is launching a tech community page for Microsoft Threat Protection. In previous podcasts, you may have heard me talking about the ability that our services have to interconnect and interoperate with other Microsoft services and third-party vendors, and that this provide protection at the door and enable the infrastructure necessary for strategies like uh, zero trust, security orchestration, automation, and response, or SOAR, Before going further, I want to take a minute uh, to explain what I mean with provide protection at the door, since I've been asked that question before. When users and processes uh, authenticate and and get authorized to perform some task, only the information available to the identity provider is what is used to make the authentication um, and authorization decisions. But what about if the identity provider had a way to get more information uh, than what is stored in the directory itself? Basically, by interconnecting services, data from other services could be available and be utilized to determine how risky a connection may be and then use as part of the authentication authorization process. In other words, it allows data to be available in almost real time, hence this is what I mean when I said it allows protection at the door. So going back to Microsoft Threat Protection, it builds upon that interconnection and interoperational services story by allowing the aggregation of signals gathered by the different threat protection services into a single pane of glass. Uh, Microsoft Threat Protection or MTP has an incident tab that shows a list of detections or detected incidents and includes a summary of the extent of the impact caused by uh, that incident in the environment. Uh, For example, if you see a credential theft It may show the users, the devices, the data that uh, it was impacted uh, throughout the environment. And that information will come from the different services such as uh, Azure Advanced Threat Protection or Azure ATP, Microsoft Defender ATP, Microsoft Cloud Apps Security or MCAS and others. In addition, the MTP Action Center has the capability to align that information to the MITRE ATT&CK framework Uh, and enable, because um, I have seen customers that own certain services and they don't have it enabled. The other cool thing about MTP is that it helps uh, streamline the time to acknowledge and remediate uh, incidents. Since now you have all the information centralized and more automation can be used to deal with the old attacks that are commonly seen in the environment. The last thing I want to talk about is this cool skilling initiative that uh, Microsoft has put together to help people get the financial fluency uh, needed in this day and age. This is especially important now that uh, people have lost their jobs due to, the, to COVID-19 financial impact, and that more jobs require technology-related skills. As part of this initiative, uh, Microsoft has enabled uh, many LinkedIn training and they're available for free through March, 2021. Also Microsoft uh, certification exams are being provided at a cost of $15. Some of the role path uh, included uh, through the training and the the certification is uh, data analyst, IT support, IT administrator, and others. So if you guys are interested, please visit aka.ms slash jobseeker.
3: So a uh, couple of slightly Azure related things caught my eye this week. Um, the first one I thought was really cool, kind of just geeking out on non-Azure topics, but Microsoft's really focused on uh, kind of getting to zero waste. And so we uh, did some pilot programs. Can we take all the stuff that comes out of our data centers and you know find another use for it? Um, so, I thought this was pretty neat. So, got a little article there for folks to check out. The other thing that, that dropped that's somewhat related to Azure is uh, the, the Windows baselines, actually, just uh, recently released for the latest versions of Windows Server and uh, Windows 10 and a couple of interesting things in there um, uh, some adjustments to the new password length controls uh, keep in mind um, that we really are pushing for a passwordless future but we recognize that there is an interim state of having to strengthen what you can do on the password side um, but uh, it's not necessarily always you know passwords that you have to change all the time um, you know if it's not changing excuse me if it's not been compromised we don't want you to change it um uh, but strong uh, longer passwords can be stronger so a couple of different tweaks and uh tuning in there i'll let you let you all kind of uh read through that in the azure world uh i've been working a lot on uh, the new version of the azure security baselines with uh with that team and uh one of the things uh, that we're really looking for feedback on and very interested and you know find me on linkedin and twitter is you know kind of how you're using Azure baselines and benchmarks um, if you are already, and any uh, anything that we can do to improve it, um, any scenarios where it's uh, where you know hey this is helpful but it's been really hard to apply these uh, settings and recommendations, really looking to kind of tweak and refine that. Um, we've gotten really good solid feedback from customers, but always looking for how do we uh, tune it a little bit better so that we're we're giving the guidance that people can kind of just go with. Another thing is uh, we recently uh, bought a, a company named CyberX, IoT and operational technology security, so Internet of Things and operational technology, IoT, OT, and really, really cool technology, um, amazing uh, capabilities to give you uh, operational insights, but much much more important uh, cybersecurity insights on, you know, are, are we dealing with vulnerable devices, Generally, yes. Um, are we seeing any active threats? Um, are we seeing, you know, attack, uh, you know, how do we link that together in a timeline? What are the, the paths that an attacker could get in to our um, IoT and OT environments? So really some amazing stuff there. And we know this is going to be a big learning curve as, as organizations kind of converge their IoT and IT and OT practices. So... Very interested also in feedback on, you know, what are the kind of things that you would want, you know, as an IT person or an OT person or IoT person, uh, with that kind of background, you know, what are the what are the things that you would be interested in learning and, uh, you know, as you kind of go on that journey to learn how all these things come together. So very interested in that. And then last on Azure Security Center, a bunch of different cool uh, enhancements. I've uh, Got a couple of links in there for y'all. First is uh, some enhancements to Azure Threat Protection for Azure Storage. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, essentially uh, machine learning-based uh, rules heavily that identify when you know, things are going weird, anomalous, you know, potential risk, um, alert type of things in your storage accounts. That hey, these things shouldn't be happening, these users don't normally do this, etc. Um, so there's some enhancements to those rules. Also, the adaptive application controls in Azure Security Center also got some new recommendations, some wildcard support, and uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with what that is. Um, again, machine learning based very heavily, essentially application allow listing that is generated based on the actual behavior of the VMs and the processes on them to help you write those uh, those rules to make sure that you're allowing the right applications. So um, very, very cool technology there.
1: And a couple of things sort of piqued my interest this week. First one was the use of uh, double key encryption for Microsoft 365. This applies to sensitive or the labeling documents so that a second key can be applied to that document. So there's a key managed by Microsoft and there's a key that's managed by the tenant. And uh, the nice thing there is that you apply it to a specific sensitivity level and automatically uh, the, the policy engine applies double key encryption. Really good to see this. A lot of customers asking for more control over the keys uh, rather than just uh, keys that are managed by Azure. The other thing that piqued my interest was uh, Azure Active Directory Directory Registration Service will be ending support for TLS 1.0 and 1.1. For Government Cloud, that will be in August. And for the rest of the Commercial Cloud, that will be in October. Uh, As you can see, Just about every service in Azure is moving to either totally deprecating prior versions of TLS uh, older than 1.2 or allowing you to at least configure uh, TLS 1.1, 1.0, 1.1, and 1.2. Interesting thing happened to me this week that I want to kind of share with you guys because I've seen this kind of thing before. Back in the day when I was working on the Microsoft Security Development Lifecycle on the SDL, we had this rule which was if we ran a security tool over some code, say a static analysis tool, we wouldn't just hand the developers a list of all the warnings because you really need to triage those warnings first. And frankly, if you give a developer you know, 250 warnings and five of them are serious and the rest are not, uh, the developer's gonna lose any interest in even listening to you, let alone uh, any trust in that particular tool. So I've always sort of lived by that idea for many, many years and you know, never hand, a list of bugs to somebody to look at. That kind of happened this week, actually, with a customer. It was really interesting. The customer approached me and asked me for my opinion on some bugs. And essentially what had happened was the customer security team had run a scanning tool against an AKS, an Azure Kubernetes Service installation, and it was running Ubuntu 16.04 LTS, the long-term support and they found some bugs, uh, some unfixed uh, vulnerabilities, and I use the word vulnerabilities very loosely. To be honest with you, looking at the list, it looked pretty bad. You looked like there's quite a few vulnerabilities in there, but on closer inspection, they they really weren't. So one of them was actually rated um, what's called the CVSS, the Common Vulnerability Scoring System, which goes on a sort of a range of one to ten, where one is low and ten is basically the slow heat death of the universe. 10 is catastrophic. I mean, 10 is drop what you're doing and you need to go and fix this now. Well, there was one bug in there that was against a a set of tools called bin utils and they're command line tools. And it was rated at 9.4. And this immediately set off alarm bells. So I started looking at this issue and and like, this is in command line tools. How can this be a 9.4? I mean, these tools, they require a human to run them. They don't run as root. They don't make network connections. They don't access sensitive data. How can this be a 9.4? I had, I had a look at the actual bugs themselves, and I probably gave them like a 4.5-ish, something like that. There's no way that these were a 9.4. But they were holding up this customer from deploying AKS. Did a bit more digging around, and I talked to Michael Withrow. So Michael was on our, um, on our podcast, I think episode two, talking about container security. I talked to Michael about it I to ask his opinion. They said, one thing you've got to be really careful of is that sometimes the vendor of the operating system, in this case Ubuntu, they may not actually have a patch uh, for that specific uh, service. And sure enough, uh, there was actually no patch for Ubuntu 16.04, but there was a patch on 18.04, but the customer was using 16.04. I then looked a little bit further. I found that Red Hat actually disagreed with the 9.4 rating and rated it at a 4.4, which is close to my 4.5. And their fix was, we're not fixing this at all. So the moral of the story is that if you're in security and you run scanning tools, please don't hand your developers or your deployment people a, you know, a wall of bugs that have to be addressed. Uh, you really need to s- perform some kind of pre-analysis using your own security expertise to frankly triage the bugs and also picky battles. Uh, again, for the customer, this was really kind of pretty scary because they had this wall of issues to, to look at and none of, them were, none of them were serious. And with that, um, let's change tacks and talk to our guest this week. We have Randy Campbell, who works for Microsoft Services. Uh, welcome, Randy. Do you want to give us a quick blurb on, on what you do? How long have you been at Microsoft?
4: Hello, Michael. Thanks for having me. I've been with Microsoft for, I in mean, my 23rd year, uh, which has ranged from technical support, dedicated support, and now consulting for about the last 13 years.
1: Nice, so your your main area of expertise is, is networking, right? Uh, specifically today anyway, Azure networking.
4: Azure infrastructure as a whole, uh, I do have a good bit of networking experience, yes.
1: So one of the big topics that comes up constantly with customers is that of network isolation. I mean, obviously, Azure is a, a public cloud and that means public endpoints, public IP addresses, uh, services that are, technically can be exposed to the internet, uh, therefore, you know potentially untrusted users. So one of the buzzwords we hear thrown around quite often is this notion of network isolation. So from your perspective, you know what do customers want when they're talking about network isolation in the context of, of a cloud environment?
4: So in my experience, I would say most of the time customers are looking for a way to be able to utilize Azure resources such as uh, Azure Storage, Azure SQL to store data that might have uh, some very sensitive information, could contain PII or PHI, anything like that. And they want to be able to utilize those in a way that remains on their private network while running in the cloud.
1: We really need to differentiate here between PaaS and IaaS, right? We're talking, when we're talking about private, privately accessible services, We've always kind of been able to do that with IaaS. Is that correct? PaaS has always been the area where there's been public endpoints?
4: Absolutely, yeah. With IaaS, you're thinking about virtual machines and those are by default, just they're gonna be specific for your environment and they're gonna be uh, deployed into a subnet. So they would get their own private IP address. They're private for you. When it comes to the PaaS offerings, really around the multi-tenant kind, you know, for a long time, the Azure cloud didn't have the capability to, to be able to allow those to be accessed through private means only. They were uh, – the only way you, ha- you could access them was over the Internet, public endpoint.
1: So many PaaS offerings, let's you know, have an example, say Azure Storage or Azure SQL, SQL database, they offer a firewall, and I use the term firewall very loosely there, like lowercase f, firewall, that provide things like um, IP restrictions, perhaps even port restrictions in some cases, but that's not network isolation, right?
4: That's right, Michael. So on things like storage accounts or Azure SQL or Key Vault, you can go to the firewall settings for that resource. And when you're looking to add IP addresses there, you can only add public IP addresses. So if you're needing to access something from on-prem, but you wanna Try to do it in a secure, somewhat secure manner. You can add those, you know, NATed public IP addresses from your data center to the to the resource, but truly, it's not really network isolation at that point. It's still it's still traffic that leaves that's not confined to your private network.
1: So over the years, I mean, Microsoft has moved um, towards newer sort of network isolation technologies. Do you want to just give us an idea of what those technologies are? and what the sort of the patterns are that we see emerge across various services?
4: Right. So uh, as as more and more customers really uh, demanded that some of uh, our multi-tenant path services have this, you know, additional security features, uh, we produced a feature called service endpoints. Yeah. So with service endpoints, uh, they allow you to Locked down, so to speak, of which Azure VNet or subnet can access that Azure resource, such as a storage account or, or a Key Vault or, or a C, Azure SQL. And again, I wanted to emphasize Azure Virtual Network because you cannot restrict traffic from on-prem through service endpoints. That is where one of the limitations for service endpoints comes into play. And that's where we come into our most recent offering, which is around private endpoints. And I'd like to take a step back and really talk about two really private PaaS patterns. Uh, I'll try to say that fast three times. So, well, number one, one there's two main patterns. One is around VNet injection, and that is basically for dedicated PaaS resources. Examples might be something like Azure SQL MI, Application Gateway, where it requires its own subnet, Databricks, where you deploy into a where you can deploy into your own VNet directly. Those are, those are examples of VNet injection. And by default, since they are VNet injected, they get private IPs, so they are part of your virtual network. Now, the other pattern is private endpoints, and those really apply to multi-tenant paths type resources, again, like Azure Storage or Azure SQL or Key Vault, things of that nature. And basically, when you enable private endpoint on one of those Azure resources, that's creating a read-only network interface for that PaaS resource and bringing that into your VNet. So again, that allows for complete data flow, network flow between, uh, between resources in your private networks within Azure. That can also be utilized by, uh, by resources from on-prem. If you've got ExpressRoute set up, uh, private peering, you've got a server on-prem that needs to talk to a storage account directly, with private endpoints, you have that you have that capability now because it is part of your VNet at that point.
1: Uh, and is it fair to say that both VNet injected solutions and private endpoint solutions, the majority of the time, the networking architecture will be over express route?
4: Yes, if you're if you're a hybrid setup, yes, that's that's most definitely the case.
1: A hybrid being you've got stuff on-premises, it's not cloud native necessarily, you've got stuff on-premises that's communicating with stuff in the cloud? That's correct. Okay. There's a couple of really good examples. I mean, SQL Managed Instance is a good example of using VNet Injection. And um, Azure SQL Database, which is a multi-tenant environment, um, that would use private endpoints instead. Is it fair to say that Azure in general, where it makes sense is moving towards private endpoints and people should be learning about private endpoints?
4: Yes, most definitely. Uh, from, my, from my understanding, from my experience, Product Group is really focusing their efforts and investments on, on the private link service, which powers private endpoints. Service endpoints, uh, they do have their place, um, again, really along the lines of um, locking down access from an Azure VNet to an Azure you know, PaaS resource. It, uh, it's pretty easy to set up just to really if you're doing this in the portal it's really just a few clicks like I said they have their place but I think for the majority of folks especially those that are in some of those industries where they want to have some of their data in the cloud and they're a little apprehensive then private endpoints uh, really comes in uh, quite positively in those situations
1: so in the interest of full disclosure so you and I have been working on a healthcare solution over the last Last few months, and the company in question actually has a policy, right, that says anything that is uh, sensitive healthcare information that they're hosting in Azure, uh, you must use private endpoints.
4: That's right. That's right. It's uh, it's coming along that we're uh, we've actually, I think, deployed a few apps, if I'm not mistaken, more on the data analytics side of the th- of the house, but they are utilizing private endpoints for some of those features, uh, where they're going to have any type of uh, sensitive data in a database or in a storage account.
1: So I'm gonna be honest with you, I've I've sort of looked at the private endpoint stuff. You know, my background is not networking, it's mainly application development. And I do find it, I mean, not confusing, but there are a few things that I sort of have to come to grips with. So what are the common issues that we see with private endpoints? I mean, what, what would you expect customers possibly to run into in terms of resistance deploying private endpoints?
4: I would say the biggest hurdle that a customer will need to overcome is correctly setting up DNS for uh, for name resolution. Because a lot of times you may have an app or or uh, or something like that that needs to connect, you know, via an FQDN. And if that uh, if that storage account with its FQDN now has private endpoint enabled, it has a private IP. So we need to be able to uh, correctly, you know, resolve that name. So having DNS set up correctly, uh, especially when it comes to a hybrid model, like we were talking about, if you need to access some of those resources from on-prem, then there is a little bit of work to do with on-prem DNS connecting to possibly DNS servers running in Azure. Um, I can assist in the resolution of those of the names of those endpoints. To me, DNS is the big thing.
1: So, so on the topic of DNS there, and this is my naivety coming through, lack of experience that would be azure private dns or was it public dns it is azure
4: private dns that that capability is there for uh for you to host zones to host those records for any resource that you enable with private endpoint the general idea is that especially from on-prem the general idea again is you have conditional forwarder set up on your on-prem dns servers and this is any in, in, like in a typical uh, hub and spoke type of architecture running in the cloud, where in the hub you may have several servers running DNS. It could be Windows DNS. Let's just say for this example, they're running Windows DNS. So basically, what you would do is uh, you would enable con- or set up conditional forwarders on prem to some to these zones that uh, that these Azure resources use for storing their uh, their DNS records. You forward those uh, queries to your DNS servers running in the hub, and at that point you would have specific forwarders set up on those to go to an Azure uh, specific IP address, and all of this is really is documented in some in some documentation that we're going to provide uh, with this podcast. But once that happens, you basically have resolution from on-prem, and you can allow also this allows uh, resolution from let's say various spokes in in the environment as well, various uh, various applications running in spokes that are. Peer to your hub network.
1: That's fantastic stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm really excited to see so many more PaaS offerings move towards um, private endpoints. I think it gives a lot of customers a greater degree of confidence that these services are essentially accessible as a as an extension of their own of their own infrastructure, which again just brings an extra level of confidence running running services in the cloud. So, Randy, we always finish a podcast by asking people one simple question, which is, if you had to leave customers just thinking about one thing with relation to private endpoints, uh, what would that be?
4: I would say, if if the customer, if customers have made the decision, you know, if they're deciding between service endpoints or private endpoints, and they've made the decision to go with private endpoints, I'm going to harp on it again. I'm going to say, go to our article that we're going to provide that talks about DNS configuration. It has all the information that you'll need in there. Uh, we've, we've relied on it uh, with this customer that Michael and I have working on. And it's a very important article, especially in a hybrid scenario. You'll wanna follow that guidance um, very closely and then do some proper testing.
1: Well, Randy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. Um, I know I learned, I learned uh, quite a few things along the way. Thank you everyone for listening. We'll make show notes available on the uh, on the website, on azsecuritypodcast.net. And with that, thank you very much, and we'll see you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixer.org and licensed under the Creative Commons license.